Welcome back to episode number 237 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety and entries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are discussing the robotic standards for safety and compliance, and we're doing that with Adam Harose, Director of Engineering at Conversion Technology, Inc., based out of Norcross, Georgia, which is outside of Atlanta. Adam, welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Good to be here. I'm really excited to have Adam on today. The Conversion Technology team has been a longtime member with Dust Safety Professionals, their group that we interact with quite a bit on combustible dust, dust hazard analysis, food and feed processing. We've had them present at our conferences on process safety, on the difference between process safety and combustible dust safety and the, the different techniques that are used there. And this episode is also a little bit outside the scope of our traditional kind of combustible dust we cover on this podcast. But it's something that's equally as important and equally as relevant today. A lot of the sites that are handling combustible dust are also starting to see more adoption of robotics equipment or automated equipment. And Adam himself is quite involved with the standards development process for robotic standards. He's also seen a lot of sites. He's done a lot of presentations recently. I know he's been on the road at conferences presenting on this topic. So we want to get him on the podcast to talk through this. In this episode, we're going to talk about Adam's role in the industry where things are at today with the robotic safety standards in terms of safety and compliance, what standards apply, what's in there, any challenges that Adam sees with his work and the clients he's working with, any similarities where the knowledge level and adoption level is with combustible dust, and any overlap we can find with combustible dust as well. So with that in mind, Adam, are you able to introduce yourself a bit and explain what your current role is in the industry? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So as Chris said, my name is Adam Harose. I'm the Director of Engineering here at Conversion Technology, or CTI, as, as you'll see us commonly called. CTI being a f- environmental and safety engineering consulting group, just outside of Atlanta, travel all over, specialize in environmental compliance and permitting, as well as general safety, combustible dust, process safety, and robotics. So my role in the industry is little all over the place. So I'm a voting member of the R1506 standard, which is the overarching standard on robotic safety, as well as the R1508 standard committee, which is the standard on mobile robotics. I am a member of, of A3, or the Association for Advancing Automation, which is, which is how I'm part of that committee. And then as part of my R1506 committee, I am on an alliance group that meets with OSHA NIOSH, as well as A3 representation to kind of merge industry and standards, safety and regulation and data to advance safety in the robotics industry, as well as throughout different facilities. Through that alliance, I've been part of the team to update OSHA's technical manual, Chapter 4 Robotics. And then I also led the team to create the training for OSHA on robotics. So they get a good understanding of what to look for, what robotics are, how do they move, and what to actually look into uh, when they're on site. Yeah, no, this is really helpful. So we have 1506, which is the Industrial Robot Safety Standard, um, and Mm -hmm. that's an ANSI standard. We have 1508, which I believe you said was the Mobile Robotics Standard. Was that right? Correct. You mentioned that you're part of A3, which is an association that's looking at these applications. Um, And you mentioned this alliance group and a couple of other things as well. But the alliance group between NIOSH, OSHA, technical experts like yourselves and others that are doing things like creating or working towards improving 
the OSHA technical manuals on robotics and other things like that. I think we're going to get into some of these things when we talk about the current status of robotics and, and combustible dust because I, I don't know, I like the sounds of an alliance, alliance group to talk about combustible dust too, but I don't think one exists. So that's kind of neat. Um, let's yeah. let's talk about the robotic side of things. Um, I know you've been talking a lot of at events and presenting on a lot of the great work that you and your team have been doing. Where where are things at today? Can you provide just a little bit of summary of robotics and the standards and code compliance there? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, when it comes to technologies like this, there's innovation constantly. So so it's it's a growing field, by no understatement of the words. So where the, where the standards are today is uh, just some updates on the standards. Uh, R1506 or ANSI RIA R1506 is a direct U.S. adoption of the international standard ISO 10218. So when the International Standards Committee passes their revised 10218 standard, our committee t- gets that. And we do a mostly direct U.S. adoption. So we pretty much take 10.218, turn it into a little more U.S.-friendly wording, and that comes out as R1506. That standard, the 10.218 standard is being updated, expected, I think, by 2024. And with that, the R1506 standard should be published next year as well. The difference being that R1506 has a few parts, part one for manufacturers or OEMs, part two for integrators, which are those that design the system, install it, and get it implemented at the facility. And they are introducing a part three, which is going to be the user requirements. Uh, Similar to that, R1508 is a little further ahead than R1506. It is not a direct adoption of ISO. That's that's why. So with R1508, part one is under review for balloting. Part two is through its final revision, and the part three for that will be shortly after. So those two standards are kind of on their path for publication, I expect, end of this year for R1508, possibly, but into 2024 for both of those standards. Obviously, as I mentioned, OSHA is being trained on robotics. OSHA does not have a regulation on specifically robotics. They have a lot of electrical and fire and slip trip fall that they can meld together, but there's no specific regulation. So with that, the OTM or OSHA technical manual being updated is kind of the guidance document that's good to use, but OSHA being trained, not exactly a standard or regulation, but it's at least getting the knowledge they need. And then obviously with that, the standards going forward, exosuits or exoskeletons is kind of another leading technology that is being discussed within the standards field of where that falls in. Is it a robot? Is it not? ASTM has a standard on that, ASTM F48. So the standards community is trying to build that to see how that goes. The standards tend to be driven by industry. So as industry picks up certain technologies, the standards, we do our best to kind of follow that. Usually within a few year gap, not as much like a combustible dust, for instance, as kind of a 10 year gap. So that's kind of where the standards are at their current place. From a compliance standpoint, in the several years I've been working in the robotics field, I've definitely seen an increase 
towards compliance, which is pretty nice to see. So with compliance, I know on my side as the consultant, I've seen a lot of OEMs and poor manufacturers. They are definitely putting themselves ahead to make their voices heard in the standards. So they're also the ones pushing the innovation of both the technologies themselves, as well as what safety requirements should be put into the systems. They're leading innovations on sensor technologies, which which ties into the functional safety. And then the vision technologies is just going through the roof. So that would be, quote unquote, the cameras, the the eyes of the the system. So they're able to see three-dimensional objects, pick up colors, differentiate between different densities. It's, it's, It's pretty interesting with that. Outside the manufacturers, the next side is the integrators, which are those that install and implement and design the automated systems. Me personally, I've seen a lot more integrators reaching out to us to look at their system from the design standpoint for both safe design as well as just standards compliance, which we all know the importance of compliance. But the integrators reaching out to make sure that they are good to go with part two of R1506. And then they want to make sure that their customers are getting the safest system that an integrator can feasibly put together on on the design pages. So so that's kind of what I've been seeing on the compliance side. And obviously, the end users, which are the facilities, have kind of always been a steady stream. And when we can talk later about some of the challenges that trickle down through that and trickle up as well. But um, yeah. there's definitely been a big, big push towards safety and compliance. No, awesome to go through that. And I must, I must say it sounds complicated. <laughs> there's a lot to it. Yes. Yes. I, I think it's complicated. A couple of things I'll insert here. One, my belief is that this is going to be relevant to the audience because that's why we're doing this interview. And, and why I talked to you, offline before just seemed like there was so much here that is like, okay, well, let's get Adam on, at least try to cover as much as we can. And then if folks have questions, they can reach out to yourself. So we'll have your contact information in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 237 for this episode. Um, so if you have any questions about the robotic standards, any specific, how they apply to your applications, dates of adoption, how, why, what, when, where, and how, <laughs> I think I said how twice there, you know, Adam's the, the right one to reach out to to talk about that. Um, I have been jotting notes furiously as well. I'll try to summarize a bit of this, but there's there's so much here. It's really interesting. I mean, even the definition of robotics, and I started writing that before you even mentioned the Iron Man suit. <laughs> but, and, and then you mentioned, well, we, is that a robot or not? That's that's a great question. Um, and by that, I mean the exoskeleton suits as well. But it's it's almost like all of your five senses, so sight, smell, touch, and and so on, can be made automatic and robotic. So then we have sensors, we have, you know, vision robots, we have all these different kind of, uh, you know, mechanical robots. And just the thought of trying to cover these all in one set of, even one standard is is quite daunting, I can imagine. It sounds like a whole set of, of many standards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would say there is there is not one standard. Yeah. I would say there is not one standard, in fact, when it comes to the standards around robotics and systems. I have a page front and back covered in standards. <laughs> like, for instance, uh, we have the R1506 standard. Canada has the has their own sets of standards, the CSA standards. Different countries have their own standards. In the U.S., there's the overarching standard, and then there's a separate standard for 
ju just validating the safety functions and the PLCs and relays is another standard <laughs> regarding certain end effectors. So yeah, it's it's a it's a web. Okay. Um so a couple of points that jumped out to me here and I'll, I'll just rattle them off. And then I want to kind of talk about a few different aspects, but you mentioned ISO 10218 as the international standard for robot safety standard, the robotic systems that's adopted mostly directly in the U S as R as ANSI slash RIA R1506. I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's interesting. They adopted directly from the international standard. We, we definitely don't have that in combustible dust. <laughs> We maybe can get into that later or maybe not. We'll see. So there's that context. There's the different parts. So part for manufacturer, part for integrator, part for user requirements. It sounded like these standards are in development today and not actually live documents that are being followed. Is that is that correct? Is that what I got from both 1508 and 1506? Sound like part one and 1508. No, I'm sorry. So this is just the newest, this is just the newest revision. Okay, just the newest revisions. Got it. So R1506 has been around since the 80s, I think. So they're, they're in their current edition now. It's the next edition is under review currently, similar to the NFPA 660 being put together and 484 and some of those standards that got updated in the last couple of years. This is just the newest. Yeah. Okay. That makes more. That, that makes sense. Um, I just missed that when you said it. Kind of one piece here, like there's a lot of standards, a lot of different types of systems. There's a lot of roles that are covered, manufacturers, integrators, users. What are the, what are the hazards that we're looking at here? Like, are we, yeah, what, what different hazards do all these standards try to address in terms of making systems safe at the end of the day or making facilities safe at the end of the day? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Actually, there's the few basic ones getting hit by a robot. Let's start with the big one. It's uh, I was thinking impact was a was certainly a one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, when we'll talk about the different robot types in a little bit, but when I do a DHA and I'm walking through a food plant and I see giant robots that are part of their packaging, these robots can lift hundreds of pounds. They can they can move a whole pallet if they were, you know, programmed to do that. Now, if that hits a person, that person is not going to be happy, uh, to say the least. So impact is is probably the biggest one because that can that'll kill a person. So that's a hazard. Things like being pinned by the robot. So if a person is able to access within that enclosed cell, that's typically an enclosed cell. Uh, if they're able to access it, that robot can move and pin them against either the, the perimeter fence or a piece of equipment. That could be a big problem. It goes all the way to the gambit of even maintenance or cleaning within the cell, slip, trip, fall. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a risk assessment now, but it's a much smaller system. But we, what happens when the end effector or that gripper or tool at the end that's actually maneuvering the, the work, if there, let's say, is a sudden loss of air pressure in the line and it's an air-actuated servo that is holding something together, is that going to suddenly release the 400 pound table it's moving? That's something. So emergency conditions and something like that. So those are just some of the, it's kind of the big, the bigger hazards that I look at. Yeah, it makes sense. Cause I mean, in our frame with combustible dust, we're generally thinking fire and explosion hazards, but I do want to bring up here that, you know, for robots, we're looking at different things, impact, um, pinning, maintenance and cleaning, general occupational safety hazards, like slip trips and falls non-normal operations, emergency response, 
yeah, you don't want the you don't want dropping a I don't know a car door on on somebody or something. That's not good. <laughs> so you got to think about the ways that that those occur. Uh, what are some of the challenges they see? So I mean, we have this big set of standards, and I also mentioned too that we'll try to get a. I don't know if we can get access to any of your presentations or slide decks or something that you recently give. Somebody's like. So I'm trying to draw a picture here, but it's already too complicated. <laughs> but it'd be nice to kind of lay out the different standard sets. I'm sure you have something like that. So if we get that, we'll put it in the show notes again. If not, um, email Adam and, and he'll, he'll send any information your way. But yeah, what are some of the challenges? So we have the, the standard set. We have the hazards that we're looking at. We have this really steep innovation curve, this really exponential kind of growth in types of robots and systems. What are the challenges then that you see in standards from your work today? Yeah, so uh, obviously there's always a challenge in standards with keeping up with technology because it just doesn't work that way. It takes years to even update a standard and it doesn't take that long to create whole new innovations in the technology. But some of the challenges are more kind of in the in industrial side of things. The, the standards, I will say, have a there's a there's a, a big voice held by the manufacturers of the the robots and the systems, but me personally being the consultant in the room in the on the standards committee representing the facilities themselves, I would say the manufacturers actually do a pretty good job about understanding the need for the safety. So so I, I definitely want to make that clear, but some of the biggest challenges I think come from just a kind of lack of understanding which is definitely getting better. For instance, a risk assessment I'm currently working on, I was told, and I hear this many times, somebody wanted a collaborative robot or what some people refer to as a cobot. And many people think that they're just safe to go out of the box because that's how they're marketed. Well, that's, that's not the case. There's no real such thing as a collaborative robot. It's a robot working in a collaborative application. But those typically when you would think about it, it's relatively small, small payload, almost looks like it's wrapped in plastic, kind of friendly looking. Uh, that is because it's meant to operate around people. But what, what I have to remind people all the time is those still require risk assessment. There is potential safeguarding that has to be implemented because these robots are designed that if they hit a person, they're going to stop. From an OSHA perspective, let's just not have it hit the person. So that's kind of a, a challenge I've seen pretty steady over the last, I would say, four years, since five years, since those really hit the market. And cobot being a, a marketing term somebody made up several years ago. So with collaborative, that's that's where a lot of people like to go is really any robot can be put into a collaborative application. There's really just specific in the standards, the specific layout of how can a collaborative application work, which means a person can be in, let's say, in the cell while the robot is maneuvering. So low, lower payload, lower speed, things like that uh, just being put in place. You can put the heavy, big time car moving robots as a collaborative application, just tougher with the bigger it gets. So, Yeah, the risk assessment, I guess you're trying to reduce the... Uh, the severity overall, that's probably, I'd, I've never seen these risk assessments, but you know, you, you I'm yeah. thinking if you're, if you're trying to get a collaborative space and you're trying to get human in there, you're looking more at the severity, not necessarily the likelihood, but you want to tackle likelihood if the thing bumps into the human, but you need it to not be severe when it bumps into the human. Um, that's why, exactly. like you're saying, they're wrapped in pla uh, 
wrapped in bubble wrapper or whatever the things are, <laughs> so they can't hurt things. I, it's it's totally interesting this this idea and this concept. I've never thought of it, but, oh, yeah. but go on. So we have collaborative systems as well. What other challenges? Yeah, that that's just kind of a little lack of understanding is is where collaborative falls in. But some some other things similar with collaborative is a lot of people like fences around their robots, which when I fell into safety, you know, well over a decade ago, uh, I'm a mechanical engineer. So I really like fences and machine guarding. It's wonderful. It's you can see it and you cannot walk through it. It's great. But there are other technologies out there. There are area scanners that I love. Uh, area scanner being similar like a light curtain, a light curtain that shines, you know, single beams across to the receiver. An area scanner sits at a certain point and shines a two-dimensional plane over a certain angle, say 200 degrees. And you can set that, that as a person approaches, for instance, in the collaborative system with no fence, as people are walking by, the robot can slow down when a person reaches a certain zone and stop when it reaches a certain zone as in that 2D field. So I really like uh, area scanners myself, but I, I like I'm a, I like to nerd out with them. Fences are great and they're reliable, they're dependable. We all grew up with hard fences and guards and things like that. But I just want to make sure everyone's aware there are other technologies out there. It's just kind of how much do you want to put into it? Because you know, a fence is one price, a scanner is a different price, but that they're not always gonna, they're a little bit different. So and then similar with when I'm walking through a, a flour mill and I'm talking with maintenance. Uh, maintenance likes to do things kind of their way. Maintenance actually being some of the main people that get the training for the robotic systems because they're the ones that typically have to operate it manually. So picking up that pendant and moving the robot itself in order to actuate or get it to a certain position, things like that. But, you know, as these progress, as the standards increase, there are still steps that have to take place. So for instance, Probably the biggest thing I find typically with maintenance, because when a machine is, let's say, getting a PM done, maintenance is in there, they're putting the system in manual, and let's say there's three maintenance techs in there working on it. The big thing I find is, as the standard requires, uh, a three-position enabling device or or a dead man switch uh, needs to be held by each person that is within the cell, within the reach of the robot during manual operation. Similar to lockout tagout, every person that enters the the zone needs to have their lock on it. It's the same during manual operation. Each person holds a dead man switch. If they release it, the system stops. If they grab it too hard, system stops. So that's something that I would say is getting better, but it's a common thread I find that I have to recommend. Hey, I'm talking to maintenance. Let's go through your PMs on the system. How many of you go do that? If you can set it up where it's one maintenance tech, great. Or I did I did a risk assessment where they're like, no, we just lock out all the time. I'm like, that's great. If you can feasibly do that, sometimes power needs to be at the servo so things can actuate, so maintenance can, can do what they're doing. Yeah, that's a great point. And I wrote before you mentioned that, are there any challenges with deactivations of safeguards? Because we were talking about some of the safeguards and fencing and alternative options. And I know with combustible dust, we'll see this quite commonly in different applications where if a safeguard is 
troublesome or too complicated or slowing work down and may get deactivated and that may be a a trigger for uh, an incident to occur. I can imagine with the complexity of these robotic systems that there's lots of safeguards and you kind of went and talked about a specific one. So if you have maintenance operations going in and working on systems that are not electrified, not actuating, then you may be able to use lock or tag out, but if they are actuating, then they need really specific procedures that lends the standards to do that. And I assume, yeah. <laughs> I assume a, a, a dead man switch is if it's dropped, then then the system stops. Is that correct? C- correct. Really, if anyone lets go of that button, Okay. I might call it a, I, I might suggest the next revision calling it a drop switch because <laughs> I don't like the term dead man switch so much myself, but <laughs> I try to not refer to it as dead man switch, but it's, it's what it's been called for so many years. It's an enabling device. It's a, it's a three position enabling device, but, and, and for those of you that don't know, the back of a teach pendant is typically going to be where there's a three position switch as well. So as a person's holding the pendant to teach the robot, they're holding that switch down. Got it. Very cool. Um, anything else you mentioned? So you mentioned um, collaborative robots, you mentioned fencing and alternative options to have boundaries between humans and robots. You mentioned maintenance challenges. Anything else in there? Yeah. Another challenge. It's not a set answer. And it's not really in the standard, but even on the standards committee, we talk about it is, you know, there's a different standard for a manufacturer. We all know what a manufacturer is. They're the ones that make the robot. There's a standard for integrators and there's a standard for the users. So a big challenge I've been seeing is at what point does that user potentially become the integrator and therefore have to meet the integrator part of the standard? So if I have a robot operating in my packaging line, it's going great. It's doing good. We have a new product coming in. So I therefore will have to have my maintenance guys or or a fab shop, let's say, make a new end effector that's a different size or potentially a different type of actuation, whether it go from a gripper to a vacuum style or something like that. So I go in, I adjust the program because when you change end effectors, you potentially change the reach of the robot depending on its size and what part or product you're you're moving. So once you go in to start changing that program or adjust the specifications, you are technically now the integrator of your own system. So you must now meet part two of the standard, uh, which is a little obviously going to be more stringent than part three, but that's kind of is, well, the integrators installed it. It's good. We can do whatever we want. Well, not exactly. And then once you are technically the integrator for, let's say, the day, you've done it. It's all good to go. Similar to a DHA and the maintenance of uh, management of change requirements, you need to make sure your risk assessment is updated to account for maybe a changed or updated reach of your robot because now is your fencing far enough away because the standard does have certain requirements as giving distance and things like that. Is it far enough away with the new reach? Is that something that needs to be looked at? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. If you're changing the, I forget the word you use now, but the end pieces, the things that actually grab stuff, the grabbers, that works. <laughs> if you're changing those, then yeah, you're, you're changing the potential reach of that system. And then whatever it's holding added into that as well. 
And I think the really interesting point is when does the user become the integrator? And that's that's another combustible dust question <laughs> that kind of comes up. But let's we'll talk about the, the kind of the difference between the robotics and the combustible dust standards in a second. Any other challenges you want to get through? So I would say those are the top few I run into. Obviously, as I mentioned, just people's understanding of the standards. Like you said, they're very complex systems. There's dozens of standards. Robots do deal with parts and pieces and companies that are in multiple countries that have different standards. I recently did a risk assessment for a manufacturer and integrator in Brazil installing their equipment in Canada. So they designed it to Brazilian standards, which are, which are good, but they needed it to make sure it was good with Canadian standards. So I had to go in and, and they also wanted to make sure it was US standards so they could sell to the US. But you know, Brazilians, I'm, I'm asking certain questions like, oh, well in Brazil, we don't have to do it this way. I'm like, I, I know, but in Canada you do. So you have to understand there's different countries, different parts. You, um, if we're talking about a robot, maybe made in Japan with an end effector made in-house, but you buy an area scanner made in Canada, well, which, what has to follow what? And then end of the day, when it comes to regulation, at least in the U.S., if it's OSHA or the, or the Bureau of Labor in Canada, they're kind of looking at the facility to have the answers. And that's, that's where that understanding is, you know knowing what's what and who's who comes into play. Yeah, it's really interesting. What would you say, I mean, in terms of the knowledge of robotic standards, we, we've had, you, you mentioned that the robotic standards have been around since the 80s. It's obviously changed because robots have changed quite a bit since the 80s and their the rate of change is, can't remember the name of the law, but it's been doubling every, every year, every two years, whatever it is. Innovations going on in that space. Where's the knowledge level at for the end users that are installing these systems? And how do you see that with kind of mirroring combustible dust as it's really been, you know, a focus coming in 660, 652. I've pulled out sugar NFPA standards from 1920s. So it's also been around for a long time. But some people would say we're in our infancy of combustible dust. Yeah. How do you see that as in terms of robotics? Where's the knowledge level at today? And and how are the end users keeping up with the, the innovations and the changes? Yeah, that's... That's a really good question. And, and obviously, I come at this being on robot safety standard committees, uh, as well as I'm on, I'm on several NFPA committees as well. So I do get to see both sides. I, unfortunately, I don't think that the particular standards knowledge is, is where it is on the robot side as much as it is on the combustible dust side. When I'm walking through a facility for a DHA, people are pretty aware of what the 652 requirements are. If I'm at a food plant, obviously 61 comes into play, but I, I maybe it's similar to how people's potential understanding of 68 and 69 for NFPA are. But with R1506, mostly I, I think it's people are read it and know it's very complicated because, because it is, but it's, and that's kind of the way it is with all consensus standards, similar to the NFA standards, the ANSI standards and national consensus standard, OSHA does not have a regulation. And I think that's the big hindrance of people knowing they should know the standard. You know what I mean? So with the OSHA regulations, most people at a facility, especially in EHS, they can quote 29 CFR 1910 
the OSHA regulation for general industry pretty well. But when it comes to R1506, especially part one versus part two, and then upcoming part three, and then there's another standard if you want to do collaborative, there's another standard for this. And uh, I think it's definitely getting better over the last several years. More and more people understand what's in the standards. They reach out to me, obviously, as the third party, which has its own benefits. But then me being on the committees, I, I have a little bit more working knowledge of the standard itself. But, the, you know, the big part, even though OSHA doesn't have a regulation, and, and this will come in, I'll repeat myself a thousand times for this, OSHA is learning how to look at robot systems. Uh, the the data is not exactly there yet because they haven't had the infrastructure in place to know what's the incidence of robots. Uh, we get incident reports similar to Chris, to yours that you you put out for combustible dust, but it doesn't track as well with, with the Department of Labor. So a, as I've been seeing more, so over the years, we know OSHA has cited people and facilities for not having DHAs done. It's the same with risk assessments. That's, that's kind of the trend that they're likely to move in. Um, I'm not in OSHA, so I don't know, but you know, they can cite a facility for not having a risk assessment done. They can cite a facility for not having a DHA done. The OSHA regulations do require people to follow national consensus standards that are relative to that industry. So they can do that. We all know they can do the 5A1 for, for, for stuff like that, which is the general duty clause. So I think that might be their a push that they're going to lean towards only because I only say that because I was in a room with 40 of them talking about how to progress safety in, in robotics. So I think that's kind of where it's at and where it's going to go. There's a lot that's different, obviously, between the R1506, R1508 and the, let's say, 652, 44, 661, which, you know, robot systems are, are complex, not saying that a three, metal 3D printer or cereal plant are not complex, but they, they're just different components. Um, obviously, when it comes to automation, there's more programming and code involved. Obviously, I mentioned the different international companies and components kind of makes it difficult to know who's responsible for what sometimes. The different design aspects, some parts being bought from overseas, some parts being built in-house, again, at what point do you have to comply with which standard is kind of how they differ. I know from all my many NFPA 660 and those related committees recently, you know, the NFPA side, they are talking about who does what, who's responsible for what, a DHA must be done by a qualified person as defined by this. R1506 is not there. Believe me, I'm raising my hand saying, hey, NFPA says this. This is a pretty good definition for something. But, you know, when, when there's a, a team from Japan, a team from Italy, a team, you know, they all have their opinions. So that's kind of how the robot standards differ, definitely, than the combustible dust standards. But there's a lot yeah. that's the same, I think. So we all know 652 and 61 require the DHA be done the five-year revalidation, well, R1506 requires a risk assessment be done. A, a DHA is risk assessment. So that being looked at is, is really where they go. There's just different, slight different parameters between the two. 
And they both kind of utilize that ANSI B11 standard on, on risk, on how to rate, rate and identify risk. And then the people I work with when I'm on site for a DHA being operators and maintenance, those are the people I talk to the most for risk assessments. The operators are the one that know how the machine works, what it does, what it doesn't do. I'll ask about limitations. Maintenance. Maintenance is the ones working on the equipment. From a DHA perspective, there are a lot of ignition sources that come from mechanical sparks, static bonding that may not be put in properly. Well, on the robot side, there's a lot of hazards with maintenance because that system is put into manual operation, which means there's a person controlling this big robot. Maintenance is the one that potentially knows how to bypass some of the safeguards. So they definitely work this similar people just made it, you know, for robot systems, it's just additional training that goes into it on how to potentially change the code or adjust the robot system. So, you know, a lot different, but a, a lot similar, I think. Yeah. I'm just going to summarize some of the major points and I'll let you close off with any, any kind of key thoughts on your own. Um, but the things, so I pulled out some similarities and some differences just from hearing you talk through it through this whole discussion. It's, it's very interesting. I'm going to probably want to dive into some of these, not in this episode, but in the future as well. And as we see the robotics standard develop. So the key point that I sort of wrote in our notes before is like, okay, is there anything that we can take from one, any learning we can take from one and apply to the other about how to make facilities safe and how to make facilities compliant and how to do the awareness and education piece so the facilities want to become compliant and that they want to be safe. And I don't know all the answers, but some of the things I pulled out here was, you know, some of the things that are similar, you know, different standards across different countries. That's you know, challenging combustible dust. That's a challenge in the robotics standards. And you also mentioned in addition to that, having compilations of systems that come from different countries. And and I could imagine you have the same issue in combustible dust, probably not as many different components from different countries, although you would have multiple from different countries, but I can picture, you know, a robotic system having many different sensors and very small components all the, all the way up to large components. So that's the same. A team approach to the risk assessment or the hazard analysis as being really critical in integrating those people that are closest to using the equipment and have the inside knowledge of that. You mentioned that as a really key area in both doing a dust hazard analysis and doing a risk assessment for robotic systems. Some of the differences and things that kind of came to mind just hearing you talk through it, like direct adoption of the international standard into our Fatino 6. I mean, that's interesting. I, I would say we definitely don't have direct adoption of the ISO standards on combustible dust and the approaches that are done internationally into things like 652 and 660, I, I think they're, they've been developed under separate streams. There are many parts that are very similar. There, there's many parts that are different, but they're definitely not, a, I, I wouldn't call it a direct adoption. So it's interesting to see that technique taken. It's probably as positives and, and negatives on both sides, but just pointing out that's, that's a, an area that's different. This alliance group idea. I really like that idea. <laughs> Having the experts sit down with groups like NIOSH and OSHA and and others to understand the innovations in the space and understand how to do the awareness, increase the education of, of people, how to solve the challenge that they're having and, and how to facilitate change in their facilities. Those are all things that, you know, alliance groups can tackle. And that's a really good idea. I like that. Breaking the standard down into manufacturers, integrators, and, and user requirements. I Some people may disagree, but just looking at 652, I, it's, it's pretty focused on the user requirements. It doesn't have a lot on integrators and, and manufacturers where some of the international systems may have, you know, direct callouts. Atex has direct callout for here's the manufacturer responsibility, here's the, the end user kind of responsibility. So that's that's interesting. I think different in the approaches. 
qualified person being called out specifically in 652 and in 660, I assume, and not having that same type of verbiage in the robot standards, that's an interesting area and probably something that can be, you know, dived into even more. And we have, it's interesting, it's called a risk assessment in robotics because that's what the new proposed British Columbia regulations on combustible dust call it. It's, it's a, the name has risk, risk assessment in it. I think it's combustion risk assessment and dust. Uh, I can't remember the other, the second name, but it's called risk assessment as well. And it's got a lot of qualified person. I think in the, the eight or nine pages, it uses the word qualified person 56 times or something like that. So, so yeah, there's, there's that call out and that's being propagated into other standards as well. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting things there. I don't think we have time to cover them cover them all here today, Adam, but any other key points you want to leave the audience off on in regards to the robotic standards or combustible dust before we close up for today? Yeah, I mean, you you covered it really well. The, the few things I always remind people, you know, ignorance is not bliss when it comes to safety, especially. So do your risk assessment. Not knowing you need to do one is not going to mean you don't have to do one. I offer, I recommend this on every single risk assessment I do is we all know you train operators, you train maintenance on the robots, train all employees. It is not uncommon that many employees want to come see the new shiny robot being put into their facility. So training all employees on what robots do, their safety issues, the hazards, and here's what we're doing to, to protect you. That'll help uh, because we all know the untrained, unqualified person is, is kind of a big, big danger. Just like a DHA, a risk assessment is great to do in the design phase of your system. I'm doing one right now in the design phase, so it's all engineering drawings and CAD and, and 3D modeling. But when you do in the design phase, you then have the integrator do their risk assessment and the facility then take both of those and say, well, now let's update it for where it is at our plant working. That is going to help make put safety on the front end. Safe, safety and design is key. Um, it's cheaper to put in safety systems at the design phase than it is to retrofit a current system. So keeping that in mind. And then for everyone listening, get help if you need it. Obviously, I'm a big fan of third parties as a third party myself. Talk to your integrators. The integrator is required to do a risk assessment and provide that to you but sometimes you got to ask. So make sure you do that. And then go on to A3, uh, A3's website, which is automate.org. They will have some resources that people can use. They'll have trainings. They'll have different libraries. Get help as you need. Make sure that your systems are safe. And, and following the standard is going to be key. So reading that standard might be a little tough, but you know, there's definitely some help out there. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time to go through what is a pretty complicated topic. Um, I know, again, that you've been speaking a lot on it, very involved in the committees and on these groups that are helping to push the standards forward and also educate folks on the standards. It's, both are needed, right? You need the technical standard to be put in place, but then also it's not helpful if there's not adoption right. of that standard. So there's lots of ways to do it, carrots and sticks and all sorts of stuff. Um, but you having you out there educating people is certainly a way that is scalable to try to encourage people to, to do the right thing here and take safe precautions and avoid any issues and, and hazards at their site. So I want to say thank you again for coming on today. I'm thinking this might not be the last time we have you on to talk about robotic systems. 
um, especially as they get faster and, and, and more involved. Yeah, there's, there's lots going on in the space. So I appreciate you, Adam. Hope to have back on the podcast. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Crony and Adam Harose, Director of Engineering at Conversion Technology, Inc., CTI, based out of Norcross, Georgia. And we talk about robotic standards for safety and compliance. And he gave a really good overview. Uh, it's actually was probably deeper than an overview, but a very good summary of the standards related to robotics systems. And we did talk about combustible dust as well how they fit together, the requirements of different roles, including manufacturers, integrators, um, and user requirements, the role that third parties play in um, assessing these systems, the need to perform a, a risk assessment on these systems so you can identify, assess, and address the hazards that are involved, um, and a number of different topics on this. So some of the hazards that we, we identified as being common with robotic systems include impact, pinning, maintenance and cleaning of the systems, slips, trips, and falls, occupational issues, non-normal operations, emergency response, maintenance of the systems, how to do proper, we'll say lockout and tagout, or how to work on this, the systems while they're live in a safe manner. Um, a lot of different requirements there. We kind of closed out the episode talking through a number of things that are similar, both the robotics set of standards and, and combustible dust, and they're different between those two sets of standards as well. I certainly think there's some, some learnings that we can take from the development of the robotic standards and apply to combustible dust. Potentially even some learnings from combustible dust and the history of developing those standards there as well that can be taken and applied to the robotic standards. So the more we can translate the knowledge across the two industries, I think the faster we'll go rather than just rewriting everything from a blank slate every time. I would close off with just one remark. If you have a question about robotics, the safety standards, Adam is the, the guy to, to go to. There's certainly other people that are likely on the A3 group there um, and the committees. The A3 website is automate.org. But if you have any questions on what we chat about today, we'll have Adam's contact information in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 237 for this episode. Again, I'll try to see if we can pull a slide deck or webinar or something that Adam's done in the past and put those in the show notes as well. If you go there and that's not there, um, we will have Adam's contact information so you can get that and chat with him. We'll leave it at that. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I appreciate everything you're doing. The industry's handling combustible dust, making them safer with the work they do out there every day. We appreciate it. 